0: All right, hello everybody. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Gang Guru Retain Podcast. Today, you got me, Jay Nathan. I got Jeff here with me, and we have a very special guest, Greg Danes from Churn RX. So, what's up, Greg? Good to see
1: you again. Hey, good to see you again. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, man, uh, really excited about this conversation. We've had some really good guests lately. Um, I would say that are. Uh, we had, we had Matt Dixon on from the guy who wrote
2: the, 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 um, goodness. Effortless yeah, experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Then he, he just wrote, the, he just wrote a new book called the jolt effect.
0: Yeah. The Challenger sale. And what I love about people like Greg and Matt is that they just have tons of data. They're the researchers at heart. And so Greg just released a, um, what do you call it? Greg, maybe like a white paper. Is that the way it's to a, think about yeah, it? Or a, white
1: paper ebook. Yeah.
0: An like ebook, that. a study on the mm-hmm. ten customer churn benchmarks for SaaS leaders, and the thing that I love about this study, uh, Greg and I had a call a couple of weeks back uh, and went through some of his earlier stuff that he had published prior to this paper being released. But uh, the thing I love about it is that it challenges challenges traditional convention, conventional thinking around churn and the sources of it and the reasons for it and what you do about it. And so I think as we strive to help customer success leaders become business leaders first and foremost, uh, which I think a comment like that is how you and I originally got hooked up on LinkedIn. Uh, I think this kind of data is super, super important. So anyway, I would love, well, Greg, why don't you just introduce yourself real quick to the audience and, uh, and then we'll dive in and, and go from there.
1: Yeah, no problem. So uh, my career actually got started as a founder CEO in the SaaS B2B space, and um, I built and exited a few companies. And um, I got to that point where you do sometimes in your career where you think, what do I want to do the rest of my life? Right. And I thought about it. And I, I realized, of course, that the most interesting problems are the hardest problems. So I, I you know thought, well, what's the hardest thing I've ever done building a company? everything's hard like raising money and coming up with a product and going to market and hiring people and building a team and like it's all hard but i actually knew right away what the answer to that question was i in my experience the hardest thing i ever did was to try to figure out how to make customers successful consistently and at scale that's That's a really Mm. tough nut to crack. And that's why, to me, it's the most interesting thing in business actually. So I decided I would just do that the rest of my, the rest of my career. And I, to be honest, I just can't get enough of it. It's, it's absolutely compelling.
0: So so tell me, uh, tell us a little bit about who are the kinds of companies that you work with, just to give everybody a little bit of context Mm. as to who you're engaging with on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis.
1: Yeah, I mean a lot of our a lot of our clients are companies like I build. There's they're they're probably 90% or 80% B2B SaaS companies. What's interesting though, and this is more of a recent trend, is is more companies that are either B2C or not really subscription. Um, you know, there's a lot of business models that are trying to figure out long-term customer retention that we don't think of as subscription businesses some of them are more like fulfillment businesses right where it's like they want to send you the same thing every month like you know d- fresh dog food or whatever um but but even companies we would think of as very transactional have really started to obsess about this idea I, I think i i have to believe and i'm sure you see this all the time that that this this way of thinking about business this this fundamental business model which is exactly what it is. I mean, we say business model, like how you set up your business, but it's an overall model. It's a big picture model, right? That that we want customers for life. I think that's really permeating every business. So we're starting to see more and more of that. But yeah, the dominant has been SaaS tech B two B. A lot of the problems that we that we dig into and in and in my case do a lot of research around ha- have to do. Are perfectly expressed with that kind of framing, and then just the thing that's fascinating to me is to see: well, can you can you export those ideas? Do they have any applicability beyond that? And it turns out, surprisingly, uh, in many cases they do. So, but that, yeah, that's, that's, that's who we work for. It tends to be companies that are you know interested in increasing retention, and and looking at their playbooks and really want to take to step back and take a data driven approach what do we really know what is the data really telling us about our churn and, and retention so that's that's our focus
0: yeah no that that's great i mean customer retention actually that whole concept probably started in the b2c world where you were talking about repeat buyers right um, we mm-hmm. we actually have a really interesting uh, there's some members of the gangery retain community that we've gotten introduced to just over the past year who are working in very non traditional tech companies and because every company is becoming a tech company or they have a tech component to it um, without going into too much detail and divulging it. We had someone who works for a, like an equipment rentals company. They have a lo- like a 10 person customer success team. They have technology sort of like the Starbucks app that has driven sales through the roof for Starbucks. They do the same thing in their apps, right? For, for their rental technology, which is B2B. And they have a customer success team and they're driving retention and they're driving expansion through that. So what you're saying is really resonating. Uh, I wonder if they're using the same terminology as we are. Or are they coming to you and saying different things uh, before before the words customer success start to, to come out of their mouths?
1: Yeah, yeah. Customer success is less common. They do they have a, a frequently adopted the, the, the terminologies around retention and renewal and that kind of thing. Um, so they're they're starting to be like they're starting to discover this. Like, like for instance, one one of the really interesting examples of this is the car wash industry, right? You got you got these subscriptions to a car wash, right? And it's like suddenly they've discovered that it matters a lot wh- whether customers keep renewing, <laughs> like their whole model is based on it. So anyway, it's fascinating to see them kind of wake up and say, wait, we got to understand this. We've got to unpack this, right? So anyway, yeah. yeah, the terminology is sort of half and half. We start to see that leaking in there.
2: Yeah, I think the other, the other part that's pretty interesting right now too, I think about uh, the evolution that you're talking about, right? Kind of putting, thinking about, hey, how do we, um, how do we get clear on what our customer wants, how we engage them consistently and proactively is also the idea of, um, I think of like bundling and unbundling starts to happen, right? Kind of choice in the market really starts to um, drive what needs to happen from a business, right? So I think when you start to see how the environments have moved to cloud and to SaaS, right? You've got this um, huge increase in uh, competition. Right. And now it's become much more paramount to not just uh, do what I can to make sure that our platform works for you. But now I've actually got to like, look at, you know, what's Greg's actual role on a day-to-day basis. And not only do I help him use our tool, but now I need to help him use our tool plus do, you know, how can I help him in his role? And, um, I think this idea also is permeated because of that competition, right? Hey, I can switch, I can switch for a lower cost than I used to be able to. Now there's solutions that are, uh, much more, uh, almost becoming, um, homogenized, right? Like every solution can almost do the exact same thing because software has become so such such a great uh, scalable factor. So I think like you're seeing that, I think drive, at least in the past couple of years, it seems like that's what's driven a lot of this need for, hey, how do we get back instead of just building the best product? I need to also think about this customer experience and how I, again, kind of put the customer in the middle of this experience.
1: So right. And actually, I love the way you frame that because one of the things that I think is really happening is kind of a bigger picture thing which is that, in a sense, our whole idea of business strategy has evolved, right? So we, like, I'm, I'm a nerd. I go back and I look at where did this idea of business strategy even come from? And actually, it emerged after the last World War as kind of a, a new discipline, a new concept, right? And it's no surprise that the, that the concept was based on the metaphor of war. So everything in it was competition. So you probably are familiar with, you know, the Porter's Five Forces, and they're all mm-hmm. opposing right? Competitive dynamics, right? It's me versus my competitors versus my suppliers. And even this is the thing that I think shocks people today. But when you point it out, it kind of blows their mind. Even in in Porter's Five Forces, the the relationship with a customer is represented in a rivalrous way. It's who has buying power versus selling power. It's really incredible. The entire metaphor is about war. And then, of course, that has evolved. And I don't think... In a, I don't think in a way that's as intentional as as you might guess it should. But eventually people, of course, realized, wait, those are not all the forces, right? Because basically, if you look at the five forces, it comes, the, the winners, whoever's the best or whoever's the cheapest or some combination of that, right? Best product or cheapest product or best cheapest product or whatever, right? But it didn't have room for much more. And of course, it wasn't very long before people discovered there's something else that's not even accounted for in this, which is customer experience. That's not even in here, right? And and then of course, almost, almost wholesale. It feels like overnight, but it probably took longer than I'm thinking. It, the whole world shifted, in a sense, of completely away from that model and toward the customer experience model. And we we essentially arrived in this place where everything is based on. The best experience and companies have spent you know billions trillions of dollars producing the best experience and and in a sense that became our new theory of business the theory of business was satisfied customers stay and and unhappy unsatisfied customers don't and we lived there for a long time and it's interesting you mentioned matt dixon because he was the one actually it's his research that first started to point me in a new direction which is there's something wrong with even that theory. There's something missing from that theory, right? And so we started to look at it. And I think we're actually in the middle of another major transition. Just from my point of view, I think this is what's happening, is that we're starting to realize that customer experience isn't everything. We put all the chips on one square, right? And there's actually more to it than that. And, and his research in the effortless experience, one of the pieces they did, which is so fascinating, was they asked, they asked managers... Um, what was the relationship between customer experience or customer expectations and loyalty? And the manager said, look, you know, if you want high loyalty, you have to exceed customer expectations. You have to blow them away. But when they looked at the actual data, that's not what they found. They found that, well, you have to meet expectations, but exceeding them did no better than meeting them. But the really interesting thing they did, which, which grabbed me and, and frankly, I haven't been able to forget about since, is They tested the relationship between customer loyalty and customer satisfaction, just straight up. And it was B2C data, which is really fascinating, actually. Um, And what they found was that there's absolutely no statistical correlation between how satisfied customers report being and how long they stay, zero. Not a little bit, not weak, zero. I thought, gosh, that's interesting. But it immediately resonated with me, and you guys are nodding because the thing is, we all know that's not true, right? We've had this experience a million times where some customer, you know, is is leaving, but on the way out, they say how happy they were with the experience and what a great experience. It's like, then why are you leaving, right? Or it's the miserable customer who's complaining constantly and yet keeps renewing. I mean... Like this just doesn't compute, right? Our basic theory does not map to my my daily experience. So so I that's my reaction. So we've been working really hard to kind of figure out can we demonstrate that? And of course we have. That's actually one of our one of our fun results was was to build a consistent statistical model showing there's literally no correlation between customer satisfaction, and we use NPS, but we've tested all the different ones, and how long customers stay. So I mean that's a that was a big bomb. And and it meant a lot to me just in my I was talking about my journey to figure out why why aren't customers all equally successful. I mean, we give them all the same software or product. We treat them all the same. How come there's so much insane variability from zero results to incredible results and everything in between? And I knew that the answer had to have something to do with the customer, right? It wasn't just about me. It wasn't just about what we were doing or what experience we were providing. So anyway, that was kind of a key turning point for me and one of the reasons why. Uh, sort of, I would say one of the jumping off points for me jumping into a whole bunch of other things we think we understand and starting to test them and seeing some very surprising in many cases results.
0: Well, that that is the perfect jumping off point to dive into this report. So there's, there's 10, I would say findings in here, like 10 significant findings. We probably won't go through all of them, but I'll just sort of get the context of it here. So the benchmarks are customer sat, Customer results, negative experiences, customer size, amount of discounts given at initial point of sale, um, free trials, account upsells, account downsells, annual billing versus maybe a monthly or a quarterly billing, and setup fees. So, but before we jump into which one is was the most um, surprising to you, which is my really, I'm I'm curious of that, and you just mentioned one, but. Tell us a little bit about the data capture for this. How, how did you go about doing the data capture? This is B2B data, correct? Not, not B2C, not, you know, anything yeah. else. This is actually yeah. B2B
1: information. So the data in these studies, it's all SAS, all B2B. We have other data, but I'm waiting to accumulate more before we release some interesting findings. That Those will be coming. But yeah, in this study to keep it very consistent and you know, there's always questions about, well, is it really comparable? The shocking thing, and this is this is for a future conversation, is how much more comparable SAS B2B results are with other contexts than I would have guessed, even me. Even me. So that's a that's a fascinating future shocker. But okay, in this in this group, all SAS, all B2B, lots of different companies for each individual test that we did. There are conditions for it to even be a valid test. So, so regardless of, of which one it is, you will not see all the same company's data in, in every test. It, it, because, you know, you have companies that meet the criteria for that to be a valid test, right? For instance, customer size, right? I can't I can't test a company that only sells to SMB versus a company that only sells to the enterprise. They have to sell to all three or there's no point in, in there's no value in the test. And that was true of right. all of them. So most of them have um, customer data sets in the hundreds of, low hundreds of thousands. And those are growing daily because all of this data comes from analyses we've done for Companies, and we do we do a lot of deep dive type decay. We call it decay analysis, churn analysis, and and um, in the process, you know, this data all gets anonymized and put into a huge into a huge blob, and we basically can run tests against it. And, and it's growing every day. So the, the benchmark itself, actually, I'll just mention this is now free. You can actually go to our website and join the benchmark and get a full churn analysis. Of course, you're, you're contributing, your completely anonymized and non-confidential data to the benchmark, uh, which is worth it for us. And, and I think you get a really interesting churn analysis and benchmarks also allow you to do, you know, things like actually compare churn from one company to another, et cetera. So anyway, you can go check that out it's on our website. So that's. Yeah. And we're going to include a link ideas. to
0: this report. Oh, I'm sorry, I talked over you. Say that okay. one more time. I just got that. Yeah, we're going data. to include a link. Yeah, okay. perfect. We're going to include a link to this report for everybody who's listening as well, that you can go and go to Greg's ChurnRX website and, and and download it. But all right, so of of all the things in this particular report, ten different findings, which is the one that surprised you the most, and why?
1: So I'll I'll start with with which one. Is the most shocking to people, but didn't surprise me. And this is the one we already talked about when I okay. share this with people, the one that surprises people the most is just that customer satisfaction doesn't map to customer attention. But when I tell people who are deep in the customer success world, they're not shocked. But most other business leaders are really surprised by that. It just shows how simplistic our, our, our model has been. And in, in, it goes a little bit further. So I'm sorry, just 30 seconds more on this. It, yeah, keep going. It's not that the data shows that customer satisfaction, customer experience is less important than we thought it was. What the data shows is that it's not important. Right. There's no, it's not a weak correlation. We've tested so many factors, dozens and dozens of factors. And virtually every factor you test has some correlation with retention for lots of reasons, even when it's maybe spurious or not a very strong relationship. We've only ever tested one factor that never correlates. And that's customer satisfaction. So it's really, I mean, it's quite a profound finding, and it, of course matches what Matt Dixon found in the effortless experience, and other people have found in in certain other situations. So, okay, what's the most shocking? Um, the one that surprised me the most, and shouldn't have, and it embarrasses me, but this is a great way to reveal kind of the layers of thinking that we that we have that we're not conscious of, and that was the downsell, the downsell data. Mm. So what okay. the downsell data showed was essentially that look, look we w- one of the things I had in my health scores and most people have in their health scores in some way is that if a customer asks to downgrade their account, that's a negative sign. That's a red that's a red flag, right? They're at risk. at least it's one it's one indicator the customer might be at risk. And it turns out that's actually the opposite of the truth. So when we test customers who've downsold or who've requested to downgrade their account to a lower spend level, their retention is actually significantly higher than customers who've never downsold or upsold. Because, of course, we have to pull out the upsell. I don't think it surprises anybody that customers who upsell stay longer, right? In in a sense, it's almost a circular argument that the only way they could... You know, upsell as if they were staying. We think it's a little bit more interesting than that because the data on upselling actually indicates that there's a causal element, meaning upsell is a component of the decision to retain. Okay, and we and we we see that particularly in the later stages of customer uh, journey. So at least post one year, but potentially more like post two, three years, they're happy, they've gotten results, they're, they're cruising along, but you do get to this point where it's sort of like, what else you got for me, right? Can we take this to the next level? Otherwise I might start looking around. So we do think that upsells is, is a driver of retention and particularly for long-term retention. But back to downsell, like the fascinating thing is that downselling customers stay, in most cases where we test this, they stay as long as upselling customers. And that's a multiple of customers who neither downsell or upsell. They're stable. Now, this is this just challenges the way we think, right? We think this customer's green because they're stable. They're not they're not indicating any trouble, right? There's, but but um, along comes a downsell request, and it's like, oh, trouble. And and well, what does the data say? The data says that customers who 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 request to downsell. Uh, have significantly longer lifespans. So what's going on? Right. And I remember the, when the data arrived, I was just like kicking myself because the insight is obvious. It's dead simple. A customer has another alternative besides downsell. They can just leave. Right. <laughs> so the only way they're asking to downsell is if they don't want to leave. It's That's the correct way to interpret that, right? And too many companies, and I regret to admit, I used to think this way, you know, want to make it hard, frankly, to to downsell. They're protecting dollars. And this is actually, uh, okay, so if this is one of the more shocking results for me, this to me is one of the more, I would say, important uh, insights, uh, learnings from all this, which is um, it's a huge mistake to make it hard for customers to downsell, because they're alternative yeah, turn and they'll take that alternative.
2: Yeah, this kind of reminds me of the the one of like uh, when somebody submits a, a support ticket that's actually like a, a thing that they're engaged, they're using the product, right? It's, and so right. It, it's similar thinking in my mind uh, to what you're saying, where like I, you know, inherently su- submitting a support ticket is bad. It, it, we think something's wrong we think that it's then it's causing us time to go fix and triage and figure it out but really you're what you're saying is well somebody's using the product and they're active and they're actually have they, they've done the wherewithal to actually like tell you about it like that's actually a good and positive experience that you want to end on a good note close the loop do those things um and this kind of reminds me of that one as well because similar to you the, my for my first frame of mind when thinking when you said um down sales was well um, I don't. I don't actually want to leave many of the vendors that we use today because, like, there's so much organizational change that I have to go through, and that's where the, I feel like the sometimes the the thinking um, of CS leaders maybe is minimized, right? Like, think about how much like I have. I've had um, so much risk on the line myself if I've had to buy a tool for my team, right? Um, I, first, it's the cost. Then it's trying to figure out does it integrate with all of our other tech stack, and then the third is like I have to actually roll it out to all the people in our organization, that's process, that's organizational change. And now you're telling me that, like, I'd have to go do all of that again if I want to move or I could go back to the vendor and say, hey, do you mind, like, I need to right-size my account. You know, hey, we're going through this challenge. I'd like to get my my level down. I'd much rather take that option than have to go do all the hard work of, like, moving to another vendor. So I think of it almost like that ticketing one for me where it's like, okay, now it's almost like the, it's like a false negative kind of thing uh, that, like, stands out now as you just said it. Totally. Jeff,
0: that reminds me that reminds me of a, of a talk that I heard from a guy named Tim Rister. I don't know if, if you guys know of uh, corporate visions, Greg, if you've heard of them before or Jeff, so, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, but, but Tim Rister is, he's a principal there. And one of the, one of the interesting things that he was talking about in, in the talk he gave was about this, the status quo and how powerful that is for a customer. Exactly what you just said, Jeff, people don't want to move like they're, We're all biased to stay exactly where we are. So as long as you just don't give your customer reason to leave, they're probably gonna stay, right? But you have to be careful in thinking about the competition. They could give your customer a reason to leave, right? Part of the reason people go to a different product or a different platform is because all products trend toward a platform kind of play. And if they have more value to offer for a lower overall cost and it's easier and less integrated, then maybe people will take them up on that offer. But uh, one of, one of the things he suggested exactly to that point was when a new stakeholder comes into the relationship walk them through a timeline and a history of all the work that you've done to get to the point where you are with that customer so that they sort of feel the they sort of feel the journey that that you've been on with that with that with between the two businesses as time has passed
1: I think that's brilliant. And it, it it implies something which we just have to say out loud, which is customers don't always remember that. They're not always conscious. I mean, it might not yeah, even be different. the same people for one thing, but even if it is, they, it they is. forget, right? They got 99 other problems and it. it I love that. I, I think that's a brilliant idea.
2: Yeah, that's, that uh, reminds me too. I think um, I typically try and look for like better cloud puts out a benchmarking report about the number of tools that um, a SaaS company purchases themselves. So like, hey, we're a B2B tech company. They've got all this kind of data. At one point, this was I think about four or five years ago, it was 37 products that a a SaaS company would typically purchase on average. And I think now it's actually closer to 70, I think is the most one I just saw. So, I mean, similar to your point, uh, Greg, and I think the point Jay is making, right? Like think about like, I have 70 products that I potentially am using, you know, maybe I handle three to four of those, right? But like think about our IT teams that have to handle those renewals and negotiations. Like and we do not want to migrate 70 tools, right? Like we do not want to try and move um, like sheer force across all those.
1: So right. You, anyway. you know, I,
0: I saw a, I saw a study similar to that just last week. And even despite the current economic condition, that number, you said 70. I What I read this week was more like 100 and some. It's actually projected to rise this year despite the economic challenges we have. So it's not – even in hard times, it's not getting better, right? It's it's getting more and more challenging. So, um, well, let me tell you what I thought was the most interesting finding in this. And then, Jeff, I don't know if you have one, but I, I like your I like I like your perspective on this one, uh, Greg. The whole measuring results mm. result that you got. I mean, it's actually stark. So I'll try to outline it, and you could do a better job, but. For companies that actually measured results of their customers, the customer success, despite whether the result was good or bad, the companies who measured results, period, had like almost, let's just call it five or six times the lifetime value on a half-life basis of the ones who didn't measure, again, whether it was good or bad. So can you talk about that one a little bit? Because that one surprised me.
1: Yeah, not not only is it surprising, but this is the one that I think is the most important by by a distance from all the findings. I think this, if there was only one finding you could have, this one, this this is it. Because I, you know, I just knocked down customer satisfaction, customer experience. Then, well, if it's not that, then what is it? We need a replacement theory. We need something compelling. And the answer is, we've tested so many things, but. By far and away, the most predictive factor we've ever tested is whether customers have measurable results. By far. Nothing even comes close. So, I I mean, I'm, I'm saying this is the replacement theory. This is the... So, if we went from strategy is war, best product, cheapest product, to best experience, you know, wins, I think we're in that third wave, and I think it's results win. I think it's basically customer results are the determining... Uh, field of play and competition and and in business strategy today and I think companies that well at least in our experience the ones that, that bother to attempt to try to measure or at least even identify and measure customer results do vastly better in retention so to your point I think the part you thought was really interesting correct me if I'm wrong is just that measuring it all makes so different so much difference I mean that's that is interesting. I mean, I, I can't say that I knew that was coming when we saw that, right? Because, um, because it's like, I think it's easy to grok customers who get real results are going to stay longer than customers who don't. I mean, every time I say that people are nodding their heads vigorously. And, and I have to stop them sometimes and say, that sounds obvious. But five minutes ago, we all thought it was experience. So just to be clear, right, that's a big shift, even if it feels completely intuitive. It's still a radical shift. But then this other part, which is what about this idea that it isn't even entirely just about whether they got results. A huge portion of it is whether they're measuring at all. So by the way, I knew this was I knew this was an issue relatively late in my in my kind of operating career, but but I had a story that that kind of brought this out, which is that I, I took over a situation in which there was, you know, a lot of churn, a lot of trouble. The 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 product was compelling, but there was a lot, there was a lot of failure right going on and I I just went on a tour like a lot of new you know people who are leading this will do they'll go out and like you know sit in the office and try to figure out what's going on and and what I found was that the the customers who were me- actively measuring the result they thought they were going to get and were getting no results for some reason kept renewing and I was just like it's worse than you're not measuring. You know you're getting bad results. Like, it, like it's an established fact. It's right in front of us. Why? And I just started to ask that question, why are you renewing? And actually one of the customers said something which I think is profoundly impactful. He said, well, actually you're the only vendor we work with who's actively measuring the results that we expect. We don't have another vendor that, that even bothers to do that. They all assume we're doing it. They all assume that that's something we've got, you know, wired in you guys at least are helping us with a serious problem. That's hard to solve. And you're so sincere about it that you're literally measuring our results and you're willing to live with those. Like that's not the way most vendors work. I think that's really interesting, right? Because what I think it is, is they're looking for signals that will ever work. Right, and and yep. what possibly their judgment, their gut is right on this. That perhaps one of the best signals they'll ever get results is whether the company they're working with even bothers to measure them. And and I and you know they could say, well, we haven't gotten good results with you, and we're a year and a half in, so we're going to switch to someone else. But they know, and this is what that person told me. They they know that. When they switch, that other vendor doesn't even bother measuring. So what's their confidence that it will go any better there? And they're conscious of all the reasons it's difficult now. So that it's in a sense that they're kind of smart. I think they're being really smart. I okay. think they're. I think right.
0: Yeah, I mean, if they're measuring, then in your measuring and you're having those conversations, certainly they know that the whatever the barrier is to achieving those results is not just the product, right? I mean, the product yeah. is often made the scapegoat for process issues, change management issues, communication issues, ownership and like sponsorship issues. It's it rarely is only the product that's a problem in organizations that churn. But that um, this whole thing brings brings out two thoughts for me. One is some teams think like some products, you look at them, you're like, man, I don't know how I would measure the results for this product, right? And I think it's an easy excuse for a CS team to make or an executive team to make is, yeah, this thing's complex. It's really hard to boil it down to one or two measures of, of success. What I would encourage people to do, and I'm curious to hear how you've coached people on this, is make it simple, like force it, find some way to communicate the value, make up your own metric that shows the result coefficient or you know whatever it is, just make something up. The second thing is, if you do that, this is one of the, one of the, maybe the few things that is 100% controllable by a customer success team. I can control whether I'm doing that work or not right now. I might have to go shift some other work around if I'm getting too far into the support world, but this is the important work. So Mm. curious, how how have you coached companies
1: to do these things? The way you said it is perfect. So let me just add some data to that to back up what you're saying. It's, It's probably more common than not that you can't actually measure the ultimate value that customers have come to get. It's just so common. So if if it's happening to you, guess what? You're in a very large club. Um, So then what do you do? Well, you said make it up. I say find a proxy. Maybe you have to make up a proxy, right? Yeah. It turns out that if it's hard for you to measure the result, it means it's also hard for them. So when you step in to try to figure that out, you're actually adding another value point to your offering. And I'm actually convinced that helping customers measure what matters is one of the most important things we do as a company, not just as a CS team. It's actually one of our products. It's one of the things we do. Okay, so then what do you do? Well, I have a great story on this. So I had a, I had a client I was working with, and the, the, the objective was to make a team, this one team to improve morale. I mean, they were trying to improve the product tool set, right, for a team. It's like, how do we measure that? There's no way I can do that, right? People come and go from the team, et cetera. And I said, okay, here's what I'll do. I'm going to call you every month, and you're going to give me a thumbs up, thumbs sideways, or thumbs down on morale. And I'm just going to put it in this Google sheet, and we're going to track it. And at the end of the year, we'll see if it got better. And by golly, the end of the year, it had gotten better. And you think, gosh, Greg, that's so weak. You know, that's not a real metric. That's not not a real compelling trend. Nobody's going to take that seriously why what other option do they have it matters to them enough that they spent money on a new tool set and they didn't have any other way to measure it and it turned out it was actually very compelling she showed it to her boss the whole thing was very. so the point is we we, we have to get out of this the false mindset that, that the data that matters is going to bubble up out of some core system somewhere and it's going to be displayed Sometimes, if you you have that, good for you. I mean, bless you, you're lucky. The vast majority of the time we have to figure it out. The other thing is, if something matters enough, that it's worth all this trouble, this is where the proxy comes in. There's probably a related thing we can measure that strongly relates to that thing, right? So I don't know how many new customers I got from this new marketing technology, but I know how many uh, LinkedIn to me or or connected to our Facebook page or whatever, that's a proxy. We know that's not the same thing, but you know what? In the absence of the other thing, it's a pretty compelling alternative, and we got to measure something. So I just feel like companies that take this seriously, and I like the way you said it. The way I say it is measuring and materializing results is the number one thing highly effective CS teams do if people ask me what's the number one thing they do focus on measuring materializing and to your point jay they i recommend companies stop doing other things that might seem really important to them if they have a, a limit on resources which everyone does and you can't do both do this one i mean literally stop here's a good example we tell our clients stop training customers we can't stop training them how will they learn the system Actually, most of the customers who learn the system do so by digging in and following your instructions and watching videos. If you have good training, put it on video and put it on a site and tell everybody where it is. Go back to finding out what matters to customers, figuring out how they're going to be measured, measure them and materialize them back to the customers So they know, and even if they get poor results back to that whole thing that you pointed out, it turns out they still see you as a critical partner and they're very unlikely to leave. And of course they're right. If we're measuring now and results are poor that's our opportunity to say here's what you'll have to do customer to get good results let's work on that and sure enough you can get to good results so so they're not wrong
2: it's uh, this reminds me of like uh don't let the don't let the small details get in the way of a good story uh, it's like the <laughs> quote that comes to mind for me because i think um the heart the hard part for people is that um if you've uh, there, there was a research study by nucleus research which uh, they basically put out and it was basically uh, order of magnitude from like believability, and basically it's like first order of magnitude is that uh, you want the ROI that says, "Hey, I can tell you if you give me a dollar, I'm going to give you a dollar back." Uh, but most products aren't on, aren't on that spectrum, right? They're actually down on like a third or fourth order, which is a very indirect benefit, which means I have to describe to somebody in a very simple way how we could plausibly get to that roi and again i think most often when teams look at that they think well i can't i'm not at the first order of magnitude so i'm just not even going to try and if i'm not even going to try then like let's just go do all these other things like you said that i think are going to make the customer stay longer i'm going to measure their satisfaction i'm going to you know make sure they don't downsell i'm going to do all i'm going to spend all my effort on all these other other things when the easiest or most simple thing for them to do is Um, to measure something and then try to to tell the story of how we're going to move that over time. I think that's the other thing that I've noticed in my career as well is that um, the metric that you often start with isn't the metric that you always have to have or end up with over time. And even telling that cohesive story, hey, we started with this because that's the only thing that we could measure. Guess what? Six months down the line, it was trending in the right direction. We actually found a new metric that was better or we connected with a different system that could help us do this. And great, now we're measuring that. And I think sometimes we get in this, This fallacy that like if I can't prove that it drives um, you know ARR or retention metric or if it's not some business metric then then an executive's not going to care about it. But the problem is that like you don't have the story to make an executive care about it, um, and you need to actually bring the story along with you in order to make that happen.
1: I love it because the other thing that that um, highlights that journey we're on is the expression that we're a partner in their success. We always say stuff like that, but I think it's really shallow the way we typically talk about it. What you described is a deep partnership. We're on a journey for your success. And if today it's X and tomorrow it's Y, well, that's what we exist to do. We don't actually exist to give you the product, right? Yeah. I I say this sometimes. Right. If you, if you are genuinely tied to the result and you find out tomorrow that a new kind of shoes. We'll make your customer get that result. You'd go to China, you'd source the chews, and you'd you'd sell them to them. The point is, we think we're in a product business. No, we're not. We're in a customer results business. We tie ourselves to a set of results. can't do them all. We pick the ones that we can get leverage on. But we're committed to that. And here's the thing that's interesting. That's actually what you're signaling when you measure The results. What you're signaling is that you're actually not trying to sell them this widget, but that you're trying to get them to results and that you'll be on that journey forever. And that's what they see when you materialize results to them. It's like, oh, okay, you guys are serious about these results, right? So I think think it's powerful. I almost think, you know, maybe this sounds a little extreme, but I'm not sure it is. What if this identifying what results matter, committing to them and measuring and materializing them back, what if that was the actual business we were in?
2: Yeah, two, two thoughts come to mind on this too. I'll um, actually, you know, we use a vendor here, and uh, you know, it's a it's a support vendor uh, that we've used for a long time, and one of the best things that they do, and one of the best things that they did early on was they asked us what we we're trying to achieve, and um, our support leader did a great job of connecting with them, saying, "Hey, here's some of the metrics that are very important to us," and what did they do? Actually, they worked with our support leader because what ended up happening is our support leader put together a plan that went to our executive team on a regular basis. It went to our operating team on a regular basis. And mm-hmm. uh, what, what did they do? They actually came to the support leader and said, okay, when do you have to put that report together? And how do I get you those metrics that the metrics that we contribute to in that report? How do I get them to you faster so that you can actually fill them out? And then what you start seeing is now they've, they've basically filled out the report for us on a regular basis. And now it's monthly trended over time, right? So it kind of gets back to your point that like, maybe the metrics aren't good, but at least they're they're standing behind, saying, behind them saying, hey, look, we can trend this back for 12, 16, 18 months, um, and you've got something. So I just thought that was a, a compelling story from our side. Um, and that's actually something we still do. We st- I know we still have those metrics. I see the report that come out. So it's kind of an interesting one um, that stands out for me. The second thing that um, I'll go back to something that you alluded to earlier that um, we have a mutual connection, Jay and I, uh, by the, a guy by the name of Bob London, who uh, was a marketer for a long time. He's kind of uh, now found uh, a rejuvenated, uh, I don't know, success in customer success. You know, some of his work. Um, but he put out this, this uh, interesting quote the other day that I've has stuck with me and just keeps ringing true, which is, um, your customers do not grow up saying, "I want to be a great software user." And this goes back to your point of like training and like we get in this mindset that our, our customer is using our product and therefore I need to make them an expert at our product. When in fact, that is like the, the fallacy of what you're trying to do. It's like they're, you're trying to help them deliver the outcome. They do not have to be experts in your product in order to, to deliver the outcome that they're trying to achieve. So uh, it's, it's better for you to be spending time on the people process technology, all three of those parts in order for them to achieve that outcome rather than just solely on what your product does. And that, that line that he said, you know, um, I, I want to make it into like a meme or a shirt or something, because I just love it. Like, yeah, can you imagine a kid growing up saying like, yeah, I want to be a great software user,
1: when, you know, when I grew up. So that was just a second thing that stood out from what you're just talking about. I love it. I love Bob the way he thinks, but that's a terrific idea. And actually, you're getting at something which is maybe another big bomb that I think is blowing up right now around us, which is the fallacy of adoption. I mean, it's so intrinsically, like it's so intuitive that the customer has to adopt your product to get the results that we don't stop and unpack, but it doesn't explain what causes what, right? So does adoption drive results or could it be the other way around, right? So you think about if adoption's everything, why don't all my customers adopt, right? Why, why do we spend all our time pushing adoption? I think pushing adoption is like pushing a piece of string someone eventually has to pull on that string. And, and the question is, why do, in some cases, customers take it on and really grab onto it and go with it and others don't? And, and I think it's actually, in a way, it's useful to think of it in, in the other way around, which is when they see this as a compelling answer to the need for the, for the result that they bought it for, they will be motivated to figure out how to, how to learn it, et cetera. And there's no amount of pushing that that's ever gonna get them there. So in a way, I, I would argue success, Drives adoption rather than the other way around and and well, but what is that success? It's the promise of results So so one of the suggestions I make and I think this is this is an interesting one a lot of times when you're doing an onboarding right and you have some implementation to do so you build out stuff and then one of the last Steps typically particularly in enterprise software is you build the reports right and that's where we will measure results, et cetera. But in the meantime, you've lost everybody's attention, right? We're we're talking about software and stuff and admin and functions and right that's not what they're here for. They're not here to be a great software user, right? I love that. It's like, okay, here's what I do. We build the reports first. And people say, that's silly. There's no no data to animate them. No, but what that does is it demonstrates what the entire thing is for and it lays down the, the flag in the ground to say, we are going to keep looking, and I would tell my clients we're going to keep looking at these every month until they're lit up, until they show results. It's much easier for people to understand why they're doing this if everything's founded on that principle that measurable results are why we exist. And I think that's you know one, one of, way to materialize that.
2: One of the one of the best questions that I when I was a CSM myself, one of the best questions that I found um, to be asking um, was like a two part question that was basically like, "What metrics do you look at?" and when do you look at them? Because then mm-hmm. you could ingrain yourself into, oh, you have a operational meeting, you've got an executive meeting, you have this, right? Then I also know about that meeting. I can start asking about that meeting. That helps me get further into the, so like, um, I, th- I love your point though, of like reinforcing why are we doing this? And it's not the, hey, did you check out our new feature in the tool, right? It's, hey, did you see the result that we drove? And did you know that here's how we helped enable that through you know, a section of our tool or part of
1: it, so. Right, and once you've established that, then you're in a position to do the thing every CS person dreams of doing, which is, now I'm in, so I ask, what matters to you? How will it be measured? And then the third piece, what will you, the customer, have to do to achieve that? Right, now I'm in a position, because we laid those first two things down to say, here's what you'll have to do. Here's what the best customers do. Here's what successful customers do to get results. Instead of them saying, hey, where are my results? Come on, Jeff, show me... No, you'll get results when you make critical changes, and our expertise informs that. We'll tell you what you need to do. But it's all driven by if those are the results you want and that's and that's important to your business, this is what you'll have to do. And that just shifts the whole table. I mean, as a, as a CS person, as a, in any situation I'm working with clients, what I most want to do is change their behavior because I know if they'll do certain things, they'll get good results, right? And this shifts it right into the correct frame. Now that we've agreed on what results matter, let us tell you how customers achieve that and what you'll have to do to achieve that. That's where I want to be, right? And every month, if we're looking at those same results, it's always back to, did you make this change? Oh, you didn't? Well, let's help you get that done because that's how you're... And that's the position I want to be on, right? That's how, that's how we drive results.
0: Absolutely. It reminds me, you know, the best customers that I've had in my entire career in SaaS have been, they've had really solid cultures themselves, cult- cultures that are performance-oriented, that are outcomes-oriented, and that are, they have teams that have retained for a long time. So it's almost like, you know, you want to go find customers that care enough to right-size their contracts, to adopt the software appropriately, to, sub- to report support cases, to pay annually instead of <laughs> monthly, right? That it almost would inform the type of things that you look for in a prospective customer. And we all say that it's very, very hard to do, right? Oh, because yeah. we, we typically right. segment the market based on employee size or annual revenue or some other metric that you can see and feel. But that's actually a bigger predictor of whether a customer is going to be successful in my experience versus anything else that we do to, to, to all of right. our fun.
1: Totally. And the reality is there aren't enough of them to go around. And so when we're dealing with a customer who doesn't meet those things, at least we're clear on what we have to help them do. Right. They don't have a change management culture. Well, let's share with them what the best companies do to affect change. If they don't have an ops team, we'll help build out their metrics. The point is, either way you win when you stop and do what you just said, which is to think through What are those factors? What set of ingredients lead to success? That's why I always talk about, you know, we need to study our successful customers, not our failed customers. Anyway.
0: Yeah. Well, it it also reinforces to me that the funnel is not done when a deal closes. The funnel Mm -hmm. continues on. And there are so many more things you need to sort of build. And it's really a a design thinking exercise, right? And really designing strategies that work for different cohorts of your customers, no matter whether it's, yeah, you know, their their physical demographics or their psychographics—the way they operate as a business.
1: Yeah, totally. So,
0: well, yeah. look, we could go on for another hour easily, and maybe we should at some other point. But I know we're out of time here. So, Greg, awesome, awesome to chat with you again. Um, where should we send people if uh, they want to learn more about you, your study, or ChurnRX?
1: Well, then go to my LinkedIn page. I publish a lot of this research and a lot of different ideas that comes out there. So it's just uh, LinkedIn slash Greg Danes. The other one is is our company, ChurnRx, which is, uh, i point you to that primarily because that's where you can join the free benchmark and get that churn analysis, but also, you know, download our, our benchmark reports, et cetera, things that are useful. We also have another ebook on there. So it's some useful stuff, hopefully.
0: Awesome. Well, I hope we get to see you again soon. Maybe at CS100 again this year.
1: Yeah, we'll for sure. All right.
0: (laughs) And uh, appreciate your time and looking forward to to, uh, more conversations like this. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Hey, everybody. Jay here. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. You know, this started as a labor of love for Jeff and I a couple of years ago, and it's really turned into a movement around customer success and community, and we couldn't be more thrilled to be a part of it. Um, uh, we grow this by word of mouth. So we'd, we'd love it if you're willing and you find value in what you hear on this podcast, leave us a rating or a review on, on Apple podcasts or Spotify. It'll help us grow and, and provide value to more customer success professionals. Also, if you haven't yet, please sign up for gain, grow, retain the online community. It's gain, grow, retain.com. You can meet other people, make one-on-one connections, share ideas, get ideas, grow your career. Ultimately, um, be on the lookout also for live events, both in person and virtual this year. We're excited to get back to that. And thanks for being part of the community. We look forward to talking to you soon.